Hello and welcome to Leviathan News. Today is August 10th. We have two special guests, Corey Kaplan from Dolomite. We also have John Ho as well here. Uh, so we will start with the big news of the day uh, for us, actually, as Curve Maxis. Binance just announced that they invested, was it $6 million into CRV? That's big news. That's the first major centralized exchange that's gotten CRV exposure. Yeah, it surprised me too as a Curve Maxi. So uh looks like they timed the announcement to be with the uh, coincide with the Leviathan live stream so they could get max coverage, I have to assume. Um, but it's uh you know, it's it's pretty exciting. Part of the agreement looks as if it's to incentivize the movement of curve onto BNB. Mm. Uh, BNB is I think I haven't checked lately, it's still the second largest chain, right? Yes, it is. So there had been like Ellipsis, which was an authorized curve fork on there, which has uh, it launched, but it hasn't done a lot since then. So uh, we'll have to see exactly how it plays out, but uh, kind of interesting stuff. Has Curve launched on BNB yet? No, no. It's never so. touched BNB. It hasn't touched Tron. Uh, Tron is also, ER, I believe, ERC um, you know, EVM compatible. So it's possible that it could uh, maybe, you know, Justin Sun maybe could have negotiated that when he was OTCing. Yeah. So I remember Ellipsis. They gave a nice little airdrop to VECRV holders a couple of years ago. I believe it was two years ago, back in 2021. And now their TVL is down to $4 million. So maybe Curve can come in and help. Airdrop and a price drop. Exactly, yeah. Pretty much gone to zero. Uh, not so, I mean, look, they, they've the done three, $3, billion, $3 billion worth of, of volume, but like 60K done yesterday. <laughs> wow. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean it's home it's home turf for Pancake Swap, mm -hmm. which is um, you know also like uh, just launched on uh, Arbitrum. So like all these like are going to various cross chains to you know, see where they can get volume. But it feels tough for me to imagine that Curve would displace Pancake Swap on its home turf. I, hard to say, yeah, especially with the backing of Binance. Corey, were you were you going to say something? Yeah, I was just curious if you guys knew anything about the Ellipsis team in particular, aside from that they forked Curve. No, don't know a whole ton. I know that it was, uh, you know, Curve was very happy with it because we talked yesterday about Saddle, which shut down. They were unauthorized and maybe we're going to go to court. Um, but Ellipsis, when they launched, they like were very explicit about giving that airdrop to VECRV holders uh, and, you know, played nicely with the Curve community. So, like, the people I saw within Curve, like, were very excited about it. Yeah. So, speaking of, of forks, I wanted to bring up this thread that uh, Fiscantes posted yesterday and uh he starts out by saying i've been meaning to write this for quite some time now and hopefully we'll make a mark a generational DeFi bottom uh but the last month last few months i became quite disillusioned by the state of DeFi, not in a sense bearish on tokens but in a sense in a sense that it destroys more value than it creates and he essentially goes in to say that like all the big things in DeFi happened four years ago so permissionless swaps with uniswap money markets with compound and ave uh, USD peg stable coins that worked reasonably well with good liquidity as USDT, USDC, and uh, leverage in synthetic trading with synthetics and DYDX. And then pretty much everything after that is just a derivative of those or like a repackaging of their those products into different services. Uh, and he says, there's nothing really wrong with experimentation, but there's not too much innovation happening here. And we've kind of like reached the end where like, how many more L1 or L2s do we need? How many more DEXs do we need? How many more 
money markets do they need? They're all they're all essentially copying the same code and like trying different Ponzi games, right? Um, where you know uh, now we have every new DeFi protocol seems to be rehypothecating or providing a new derivative type product on top or vampire attacking or really just trying to like you know fight for a a diminishing uh share of the market that has been happening as as uh we've been in this bear market and so he thinks that you know we can we can continue to fork everywhere continue to make all these different l2s like base which launched yesterday but really what needs to happen is that for DeFi really to make a mark uh there needs to be some some like big changes to it and a lot of it has to do with like apps and how people use it and onboarding more people uh you know potentially this could be through like account abstraction or other types of uh new, new uh, updates and technologies that are being added to the evm um but you know he talks about how like only tether seems to be unbothered and moisturized given how much network effect they've achieved and how much behind any competition is because he's talking about like you know Curve and Aave have their own stable coins now. Frax is pretty much doing everything. Uniswap is like trying to get into the NFT marketplace, but not doing well. Uh, they're trying to launch an app, but that's really hard. And so there's like a couple of big incumbents which have just tried to capture as much of the market as possible. And uh, you know there needs to be some sort of new wave of projects that essentially go and build on these money markets or swaps or everything else and expand every expand to like a new set of of users and customers so one thing i noticed missing from this was all the talk of lst5 which in my mind is like it, i know it's like treated as like a separate thing but it still seems to me to be part of like DeFi and like part of the explosion of interest in like what's been going on on chain mm -hmm. so i mean i don't think that there's like any argument that like the DeFi from the previous cycle is like going through some contractions but i think overall like if you factor in like all the like growth and like staking protocols fraxy and the like it seems to me like the like on-chain financing DeFi, whatever you want to call it is still burgeoning in my opinion yeah, I would think that it's like the killer app for our side of crypto away from Bitcoin has been stable coins. And so the more that we can figure out how to get that in everybody's hands, I think is the kind of in in result. Right. But that requires a lot of uh, domestic like production of like apps and integration of these stable coins into products and services. Um, people have to build payment platforms. They have to build ways to actually like use them on a daily basis so that you know demand for it naturally goes up i think there's a couple interesting points to unpack from the thread not to harp on the negative side of things but more so the uh the growth of the original DeFi platforms and how big they've gotten they've kind of hit in some ways a limit to growth and they're trying to experiment with different ways to how they broaden their reach you know uniswap at least initially with trying to expand into the nft marketplace scene is a different way to cannibalize users and activity from other parts of crypto. Whereas launching a generalized app and maybe trying to get more consumers on there can be more of a you know, broadening the reach of crypto perspective. And I think that we're seeing different experimentations with it. Uniswap going more consumer focused because they have more retail mindshare. And I think a platform like Curve is probably doing more behind the scenes things. You know, really trying to operate as more of the plumbing for DeFi as DeFi continues to evolve and more incumbents join on a larger or, inst or institutional level 
Yeah, I think I think there is a bunch of positives actually to come out of it because if if we have reached incumbency with the big four like Ave Curve, uh, Uniswap, Frax, Synthetics, you know, like across these majors that will probably be here ten years from now, that really sets the stage so like builders can come in and say, oh hey, like I can build an app on this on top of here, and I know that my integrations. Are going to last right so like the core infrastructure is not going to change i'm not going to be building on like spirit swap which is going to go out of business and wind down operations in you know 18 months right uh it, it gives better planning for the future and then i think i think one thing that that is at top of everybody's mind uh, that's building on top of ethereum now is just like fixing the user experience right and I think a lot of this probably will be solved with account abstraction and just making it easier and pushing all the technical parts of the EVM experience away so people don't have to worry about it. Uh, getting rid of the idea of gas, you know, all these things that people are like working to make reality. I think we're starting to see some experimentation with that, with the layer two networks, because they have more control over the actual clients that run the VM so mm -hmm. they can experiment quicker than the you know, Ethereum core foundation and core devs with rolling out some of these things because they're they're less hamstrung by, I guess, if you want to call it governance or just the fact that the layer twos are just much smaller in scale, size, and uh, existing complexity, or I should say legacy complexity compared to Ethereum. If the core devs for Ethereum want to roll something out, there's a lot of consideration behind yeah, will this break previous behavior on the chain because it's been around for so long and other considerations that require them to move more slowly compared to the experimentation I'm seeing elsewhere. Yeah, and I think other networks, like he brought up Tron, right? So Tron's done like a really good job of keeping fees low and making sure that there's an insane amount of USDT liquidity on it. Uh, and so it's really become like the go-to place for a, a lot of like countries, like entire countries to use USDT on Tron. It's kind of like the main thing that happens there. And uh, with ETH fees at what they were for so long and still are, uh, you know, Tron is a really nice, viable alternative, uh, especially since it's so integrated in with, with Binance. Um, and hopefully now we start to see these L2s proliferate where you, know, you can get your costs down to similar to what, what Tron offers uh, for dollar swaps or dollar transfers. Um, and we start to see like growth in the, in the kind of L2 part of, of ETH again. Hey. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, so if I can just butt in a little bit, I, I do think, I don't actually know who Visconti is, so I don't, you know, want to just needlessly insult people. I don't, I don't know, but. I, I, I've seen other people say stuff like this and I always find it like very like nearsighted i don't find it like very deep you know and maybe that's something to be expected for a thread on twitter i don't think he <laughs> sort of spent months thinking about this position and getting a lot of feedback and updating it right it's just like he had like a shower thought perhaps and just put it out there and felt negative but i mean if you look at all tech i mean are we really you know like the big innovation like none of these technologies like the phone or the smartphone or computers or any, they're all like communications technology yeah. is sort of what I hear him saying. Analogously, he's like saying, well, the real innovation was by this guy. We actually, that we don't remember probably most of us 
that used electricity to communicate long distance, right? That was like the innovation, use electricity to communicate long distance. And then even the telegraph is like a refined version of that, right? And people think it's just simply like the, the magnet or whatever, moving the little telegraph thing, it goes clickety-clack, right? But there's actually a lot more refinement that had to go into that to make it work, right? Like relay switches, you could send signals even longer distance, mm-hmm. right? And you had to develop Morse code. It was actually not like a usable thing until people developed things like Morse code. And there were actually a lot of smart mathematicians and people that thought about how to transmit messages. And they had very bizarre schemes. Like we, we forget all this, but a lot of research went into this. And it was, you know, people had like numbers for like long, like for each word, basically. And they were like, clearly that's better. How many words are there? Maybe there was like 5,000 we need, you know, we could have 5,000 numbers. Like this is like what they came up with, right? Like, like actual, like famous kind of thinkers. But, you know, that's where we are at with like, I feel like with DeFi. And then for someone to say, well, we have Uniswap. That was a real innovation. Nothing came. Well, I mean, I mean, Uniswap. I mean, I think if you think about Uniswap, there's a lot of defects, right? Especially with the original Uniswap, mm-hmm. right? Even now, I think there's defect. And because you can say that I have the equation and it works, I have the bonding curve, but it's an economic platform. Unless you have real economically robust incentives, it, the platform doesn't actually work, right? Like for it to actually say you built it and like, we, you know, you have it, and that's sort of, I think, what Sushi Swap like showed, right? Because they had their token, and then they showed there was something, there was kind of a gap in the in the system, right? Like you you can't just have people being bled by impermanent loss, which actually, to be fair, a lot of people didn't understand, still don't understand, right? So there's clearly something missing. It's not done yet. It's not even like I would say it's not even at the point of the telegraph. And yet some dudes coming along and saying these guys are trying to invent the phone that's stupid like that's not a real innovation right but but it is right it's like you know and then you look at stuff like oh curves just coming out with another stable coin right to bring it to maybe something more relevant well they didn't like the recent events show that there's something wrong with these systems like Aave. are are we confident that we built something good Mm -hmm. that we can move on like it doesn't seem like it to me it seems like if you look at traditional finance, like they've moved on beyond <laughs> simple over collateralized positions, right? That's not like how things work in the traditional finance markets now. I mean, would you, right? it's I, maybe, maybe it just comes down to a feeling of, okay, we had base launch this week, right? Uh, base is supposedly going to be Coinbase's baby. Um, but like what exactly novel is happening on base? Like what's base trying to do that Arbitrum isn't doing already? Um, well, I, and- think, I think that, you know, the kind of take comes from a ton of different stuff put together. Right. But in terms of like this, there's two main takes I, I take from this, right? Number one is the innovation one. That, uh, and you guys have already talked about, right? The way that I, I look at that really is, I mean, he, he, he is right at the end of the day, but um, you know, I think that happens in everything. So um, you always see in any 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 sort of new industry, any sort of time, there is like a huge innovation. You see like one huge innovation that like changes everybody's lives, right? And then a bunch of smaller innovations that obviously don't change everyone's lives as much, but, you know, 
add to the quality of whatever that thing is. And it, it, it's going to be the same for our industry, whatever, right? So Bitcoin was that big innovation or whatever you want it. Uh, you want to have it. And then there's Ethereum and then there's uh, like smaller ones like Uniswap. And then down the line, there's like, you know, this, this one shitcoin or whatever, but they're all like, they, they all end up being smaller than the last. Uh, and, and I mean, look, that, that's just kind of how it, it works. But the other side of this is like a really, uh, really pessimistic take on like the value that has been created and destroyed it through this industry or whatever. And I mean, honestly, I think it, it and I've been thinking about it more too. Uh, it kind of all comes down to, uh, first and foremost, I think the problem I think a lot of the time this industry does is it kind of turns into an echo bubble where like everybody kind of, um, you know, starts patting each other on the back for like one thing that actually maybe, you know, it's, it's kind of shit, but nobody really <laughs> cares to stand up and, and say this thing is shit. Uh, and, and everyone's kind of like circle jerking each other. Um, and, and I think, you know, having, not, not that I agree with this take completely, but having one take on the exact opposite side, I think is definitely good. Uh, and, and, and to kind of open people's eyes to like, wait, you know what, this, this v, V74 of this protocol is actually a shit design. Fuck this. Right. Um, but look, I think, uh, and I've been thinking about it more. I, and I, want to hear what your guys takes is on like the concept of essentially slow rugging right because rugging is obviously very uh very like hard rug very known right team runs away with all the money blah 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 but slow rugging is, is really interesting because i think you can kind of character categorize a ton of different things as a quote-unquote slow rug so especially with like uh and i'm not saying this at all but i think it's a good example of um uh one that's come recently, which is obviously Mitch and it's his loan, right? I think a lot of takes were like, well, you know, fuck this guy. He took this massive loan and, and um, you know, he's like destroying everything. And, and now he's got his mansions, look at his mansions or whatever. But, you know, how do you really define like at what point does something become like this guy has created value and now he's bought mansions versus fuck this guy. He's He's like rugging absolutely everybody. Look at this massive loan that's like, a death knell to the protocol and now he's like run away with so many millions or whatever right where's the line drawn well the i would say slow rugs don't have product market fit and what michael has is product market fit and stickiness and a moat and uh you know he can take those loans and people are going to give him the loans because they you know curve has reached a level of incumbency that another project hasn't and if you look at say, what was that? What was that Olympus Dow fork that we talked? Her uh, Hector Dow. We talked about this. No, not Imami. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Hector Dow like raised a hundred million dollars and had no idea what to do, right? And was just like throwing money at the wall. And that's that's a slow rug. But if you if you because they didn't have product market fit, they just couldn't figure out how to make. I know. Um... I know Chan Ho and I were talking about the Mitch Mansion. He might have some uh, points to add on the subject. Well, I mean, maybe we could talk about the slow rug first, but yeah, I sure. think that's actually an interesting concept because, you know, it's not a new concept, but so, uh, I do think, you know, sometimes when we come up with a new term or, 
you know, maybe there was never quite an old term for it. It was just called investing or something. But I definitely think, you know, when you look at dot com and um, I think a lot of us know people like this now, but it was really eye opening to me to meet someone in grad school who was like quite wealthy and at least for compared to a graduate student. But he, I think he was actually a millionaire. And we were just like, what? what? How did you become a millionaire? And it was from dot com. And, uh, you know, he had done this thing where, like, it, it just made no sense that, you know, he would be rich, but Hewlett, well, maybe I shouldn't say the company, but there's a big company, okay, Hewlett Packard, but it sounds like a thing they would do anyway, right? <laughs> Hewlett Packard just <laughs> bought, like, these little startups, and I was like, oh, what great thing did your startup do? I was quite naive at the time. He just explained it was, like, a new kind of operating system that worked with the internet and all this. So I was like, well, what is this? what is the point of like a new operating system <laughs> like that, you know, what was wrong with windows or, you know, and he was like, Oh, there was no point to it. It was just extremely like fancy. And we got to spend a lot of time coding stuff and our CEO convinced someone at Hewlett Packard to, to buy this during.com. So we all became rich and, you know, that's a slow rug, right? But that kind of thing I think happened a lot. It's, it's like, uh, you know, when we was talking about history, right? I think it's very important. that That's why I feel like these people maybe need to spend less time tweeting and read books, right? But when I was reading about, like, the history of the telegraph, like, I was reading about, like, people created, like, extra telegraph lines, like, or actually they claimed they would. So it didn't always pan out. Like, um, you know, like I would, maybe Garrett and I would get together and have a company and be like, oh, what the world needs is another telegraph line between New York City and Chicago, there aren't already a, like a half a dozen, <laughs> not even at full capacity. Surely everyone wants news instantaneously. But, you know, the reason I mentioned New York and Chicago is guess what a lot of telegraph traffic was? It's, it's actually stuff related to finance and speculation. Right? That's what drove a lot of it. People think it's like, oh, real communications. People needed it. They needed to know their aunt died last week. No, they didn't. They were fine without it. They didn't need to know that day. It's all because of stock prices and gambling, right? So, so then you get more investors into this. You say, well, we're going to have our own private telegraph line or something. You create you know, your own company, and then maybe you don't even build it. So the slow rug, I think, is like ancient history. I, I wouldn't be surprised slow rug in Babylonian times. You know, like, Well, let's talk, about, let's talk about modern slow rugs, right? So yeah. this past week... WeWork announced that it potentially was heading towards bankruptcy. And we have a couple of WeWork charts here. Uh, since the IPO, which happened at $10.38, it's declined more than 95%. It's trading at 20 cents now. And it's gone from its peak valuation before the IVO at $47 billion down to $400 million. Is that a slow rug, especially with how Adam Newman made out? Well, I think that's the consideration with a slow rug. So I actually wouldn't consider Chen Ho's example of that company making a new operating system and sell it to HP as a slow rug mm -mm. because they entered into some willing agreement with HP that probably did due diligence. Hopefully they did and bought something they thought was of value. Of course, it didn't pan out then. That's a hindsight thing. A slow rug, in my opinion, would be something more like the WeWork example where you have this founder who willingly knew that the company was either not sustainable or not going to pan out yet paid himself an extravagant salary and found ways to extract value from the company in that very hypocritical example or in that situation. You know, I think a modern DeFi-esque example would be 
as you put earlier, a company or product that does not have product market fit and you ha have founders at the same time potentially paying themselves extravagant salaries or extracting value from the ecosystem in ways that don't necessarily make sense as if the company were much larger than it really is. Um, the, th the difference, though, with a slow rug versus an actual one, in my opinion, though, is there's also this um, delineation between what's reasonable and what's not. You know, there still needs to be a founder getting paid for his efforts and being able to pay rent, put food on the table while they're looking for product market fit. And the reasonableness usually comes into play with what that salary level is once that's disclosed. Yeah, I'll probably agree with you on that there. I think there's some interesting dynamics when we get to crypto, right? Everybody's so PVP about things that even reasonable operational activities by individuals and DAOs and companies sometimes look nefarious and malicious from the outside. And the term really gets thrown around. We, we had a tweet that we posted the other day where it was like, uh, founder doesn't sell his token, slow rug. Founder sells his token, slow rug. Founder borrows against his token, slow rug. Uh, and there's yeah, really I like that that's, yeah. such a, <laughs> that's so good. But I mean, uh, yeah. uh, I think the me, options. I think the options were like dumping versus like oh, yeah. scamming versus slow rug. Like, just, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like one, <laughs> anyway, like another one was if you stake too many of your tokens, you're diluting the IPO. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> stake your like, tokens for four years. Like, yeah. there is, like, there's a lot of kind of considerations, right? And and the product market fit obviously is like an, a cool like stamp to add, but I would kind of disagree on that just because I've seen some products where there is product market fit. There is clearly product market fit mm -hmm. and there is value being created. But I've seen like, let's say a founder that's maybe like delivered, let's say 20 million worth of value. And they've like sucked out like 150 million worth of value through like dumping their tokens or whatever. And you're like, okay, does that, you know, does that kind of make sense? So it's a sort of quantitative um, balance for me. Right. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of time where I'm like looking at this and saying, yeah, how, how, how the fuck, uh, I mean, I mean, De DeFi allows this, right? Or, or like crypto, crypto with tokens and, and like liquid uh, equity, essentially. Uh, I mean, not for anybody listening, but uh, allows for this, right? Essentially. I think another aspect of it is just the terminal like endpoint of where that rug leads to. With the example of, of Mitch and his curve loan, you know, when, when faced with the real risk of liquidation, he didn't say, screw it, I have my mansions, I'm going to go walk away from this. He started brokering deals to find ways to lower his liquidation threshold and start paying things back responsibly. Mm -hmm. You have some you know, 2020 hindsight individuals that say, well, he shouldn't have gotten to that point in the first place. Well, he was also faced with some pretty tough black swan scenarios that if they hadn't happened, he probably wouldn't have been faced with it and probably could have uh, walked away from this in less of a risky scenario. But um, you know, going back to even a more theoretical example of a founder doing all this, if the founder wants to take something off the table, potentially, you know, one's example, if the founder wants to take uh, a couple million dollars off and get to deliver $20 million worth of value, and they're still holding on to their incentive or their alignment with the protocol to continue working on it into the future, you know, that's a pretty appropriate example. But that's the key takeaway from this is that we're all getting into nuance here of, of you know, it's very depends on the scenario and what's actually going on to determine if it's a slow rug or not. But you know, crypto Twitter likes to just label things blindly 
and uh, generally ca- categorize things. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> I thought the base example was pretty interesting because I, I think I'm going to out to make things because I feel like we all seem to fundamentally agree on the same thing. So this is not a very exciting show. So I'll, I'll uh, go out and see. I think base is creating real value. Speaking of base, what has uh, base actually opened up yesterday for the public? Uh, the two-way bridge went into action, and uh, base has been the hot meta for a couple of days now. Uh, quite. Let's go over to DeFi Llama and take a look at uh, where base has ended up. So in the past day, they've gotten a. 59% increase in TVL. TVL is now $65 million. Uh, yesterday was $41 million. Um, the majority of this has flowed into BaseSwap and SushiSwap, uh, but the vibes are high on Base right now as the degenerates come to play with this brand new L2. Here's a question. Uh, why is Base succeeding when Coinbase NFT didn't because nft is a shit <laughs> we'll leave it at that uh, i think i yeah. think diving deeper into it though like coinbase tried to create an entire app which as we talked about with the uniswap example it's not easy and coinbase even has more reach than them i think that there were some things that they got wrong with it because there was some experimentation with their nft marketplace because it was kind of like a social media site built into it mm-hmm. and when you consider their success that they've had with Coinbase Wallet throughout the bear market with onboarding more users and getting more people uh, acclimated with the on-chain world. I think the next logical step made sense because they already had people transacting through different networks on the Coinbase Wallet app, knowing that they could very easily hot swap another network with their own base, of course. And then other people seeing that, I think it started to become like a hype-driven event where you have people that weren't using Coinbase Wallet but knew that there were a lot of users there now being able to build things and participate with things that were directly linked to what would most likely be Coinbase wallet users as your counterparty for it. So it became like a cyclical uh, event then of one thing would beget another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think Base is, Base has probably got some stuff up its sleeve. I think the the ability to... I, I saw some stuff about them potentially adding in like a whitelisted address like you can whitelist your address from coinbase and then all sorts of new apps can build on that since it's uh kyc um so we'll see how it develops over the next while i do want to bring up a announcement that happened actually so i'm going to show this first and then we'll go to ivan's thread so uh yesterday rune posted about the spark dow sbk pre-farming airdrop and general sub dow farming overview so recently Maker has voted to approve Spark. Spark is going to be a lending market. It's like a fork of Aave. Um, and they announced the launch of this pre-farming airdrop where people can uh, like use their die or other assets to, to farm these Spark tokens. And uh, Rune goes into detail about here, but I wanted to talk about this thread that Ivan put out yesterday where he's like, I don't really understand the Maker in-game. So MakerDAO forks Aave, and they may call it Spark Protocol. They print DAI into it via the D3M. Now the DAI supply is up, and Spark TVL is up. But 
they start they keep putting but now there's like two ftvs now they have two tokens right uh there's starting to like split off parts of their services they're also putting a ton of money into rwas which raises risk and uh now what's going on with team members they have multiple allocations uh what, what's actually going on here with with spark well, well firstly i think I'll, I'll say that i get i think uh it's funny to see so many, especially the big protocols, essentially like horizontally differentiating into each other's uh, industry, not industries, but like sort of niches. Uh, but like, to be fair, Aave forked essentially, well, Aave did Go, right? And Go is essentially Dive. Um, so I I don't think uh, it's it, it like, you know, it's surprising that now Dive is going to fork Aave back, right? Uh, but like at the end of the day, yeah, I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of, I've never been the biggest fan of Maker, so I'm not going to have the best take here. Maybe somebody else. <laughs> I think in general, the, the move to create Spark is interesting. The thing I'm not a big fan of was making another token and a Spark token. If you want to compare, you know, MakerDAO is more of like a central bank that's issuing its own currency, in this case, DAI. And creating Spark is interesting because it allows them to move more towards like a secondary market for borrowing and lending if they choose to go there. And this initial move of putting Dai into there and doing this like pre-farming airdrop can be a way to bootstrap that new market for them to make their own uh, lending protocol for it. But the thing that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me is why are you extracting value away from the maker token by you know, creating a Spark token then? If someone understands uh, more of the nuance here or maybe has a way to refute that, I'm you know, more than happy to hear it because I hope that's not the case, but that's my takeaway from it. They realized Maker was down only token, so they need a new token. That's why. Yeah, they wanted to get away from DGen Spar and constantly shitting. Yeah. On it. <laughs> it's a slow rug. It's a slow rug, everyone. <laughs> but have we have has there been any other instances where a protocol is like forked out a new token? Um, maybe maybe Ripple and Flare, I guess. And but that's that's not. I've never seen an example where it works. I've only ever seen it work where like they transition the token mm -hmm. and there only might ever be two in existence because they didn't do like a forceful migration and instead users had to opt into it. So the tokens are effectively the same thing, but the new version is one that's honored on centralized exchanges and whatnot. But whenever you see this scenario happen where they're forking value and especially essentially creating two tokens, I've never seen it work in the long run. And one of them has to die. It's, yeah. it's, it's, and it cracks all the time, right? Uh, well, Frax put out FPI as an asset. They um, seem to have a lot of tokens. Am I mistaken here? <laughs> they, they do. don't have like governance tokens apart from Frax, right? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, just fractures, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think it's but, just um, derivative tokens. Okay. NFTs do this all the time, right? Well, you have like Azuki's and then you have the beans and then you're like, okay, what, what the hell is, where is the value going from each one? You're kind of diluting the value with each new, uh, I guess, ecosystem mint yeah so rune did uh respond to this uh we'll pull up what he said to, to ivan he said uh it's about giving autonomy and allowing communities to specialize while keeping the ecosystem aligned and minimizing complexity and risk for maker subdow tokens have shared tokenomics with maker making them behave a little bit like wrapped mkr uh, and the subdows can only interact with maker such as by spark borrowing to allocate to its users, 
uh, if they post adequate junior capital, insulating maker from first loss. And the D3M is a temporary mechanism that would be replaced by the junior capital-based sub-DAO borrowing system in in-game phase one. Uh, so maker still has to deal with tail risk and a bunch of other things, but uh, this Spark DAO is like the first of one of these like specialized communities inside of inside of Maker. And I guess this is kind of this is kind of like moving. You're right; it's moving horizontally, right? Um, same thing that that Frax is doing and and Ave to some extent, uh, where you just have to like grow as much as possible, and everything kind of it's like debt all the way down, right? And how you manage that debt and how the what kind of demand there is for that debt is is what's most important at the end of the day. And it's all just variations on debt. Um, so we had some like really worrying news. I don't know if you guys saw the um, the like catastrophic security news, as it was called. Uh, so there was two major like exploits that were posted yesterday. One was called downfall.pay or downfall and the other one is milksad. So downfall affects almost 70% of all Intel processors uh, where, let me open this up, uh, where using a, a critical weakness uh, that is in all Intel chips, uh, it allowed a malicious app to uh, obtain sensitive information like password, encryption keys, and other private data. This this exploit has been live for over ten years, and it's just being uh, disclosed now. So, uh, the person who found this has been under embargo for over a year, and uh, hope I believe they have already patched it uh, to allow this this data leakage from happening again. Um, Additionally, there's a bit of the uh, Viper yeah. zero day exploit in terms of just this kind of, uh, you know, nefarious bug that was sitting there waiting to get uncovered. So there was also this milk sad disclosure, uh, which has resulted like a actually resulted in uh, known losses of uh, funds from from like Bitcoin wallets and other cryptographic wallets. So in mastering Bitcoin there was a recommendation to use BXC for wallet generation. Uh, and recently a vulnerability was discovered that shows a weakness in the uh, Libit or Lib Bitcoin Explorer, the BX. So the BXC command for generating a new wallet uh, does not have the entropy that it is supposedly supposed to have. So instead of 128 or 256, it ends up with 32 bits of entropy, which is, which is not that much. And uh, you can brute force that essentially. Um, it's so, pretty scary. Yeah. So both of these, both of these uh, are have been disclosed now. Um, I believe they've both been patched. But it, it, these sorts of things are scary. I mean, the downfall one's been live for ten years, um, and nobody knew about it. Well, at least the nice thing with the downfall exploit is that that's patchable to the extent that you could roll out an update and mm -hmm. essentially fix the, uh, you know, whatever the, the bug actually was. In the BXC example. If you already generated a wallet with BXC that didn't have enough entropy, you can patch it so that future wallets generated are okay. But all the le legacy ones that were created before that point, there's a way to fix that. You just need to generate a new wallet and then migrate all your usage, all your funds that were to there before it's too late. Yeah. And that part of it requires a lot more active management in order to really resolve it. And that's the part that's scarier, in my opinion. Especially when it's really... been so widely recommended as well, too. Yeah. 
It'd be really nice if uh, we could contextualize this. Chen Ho, could you analogize this in terms of telegraphs? <laughs> <laughs> now, I did look at the Libitcoin documentation because there's been some conflicting you know claims like some people say it was, it, there was a warning you know there wasn't a warning but yeah i mean if you go to their github repo it actually has an example um with bxc and it says if you try to use 32 32 bits it will like error out saying that's not allowed can't be less than 128 defaults to 192 that's your help menu so i think it's pretty it's pretty clear i, I don't know what was written elsewhere but definitely seems like <laughs> they yeah. they blew it you know but um yeah i don't know how many people really really use this so even if it's in mastering bitcoin it's probably people that needed the guide in the first place which uh it's gonna be individuals that have a tough time recognizing that it actually impacts them because they'll probably hear oh it's patched it's okay but once again with my example like all the legacy wallets are still impacted by it until they migrate usage over to a new one after the patch it's um, you know, it's a tough situation to be in considering the target market was probably impacting. Yeah, I think there's a, especially with the early Bitcoiners, I was actually talking to some other people about this, but like there weren't many resources around, you know, back then. And then, you know, this was seen as like a very reliable alternative, you know, library. And they were like kind of, um, I, I don't know what they call them, political or, but, you know, there's sort of like idealistic reasons you might want to not put every trust in, you know, Bitcoin core, right? So I, I think there's probably some big whales impacted, but yeah, I don't think any of the major wallets or something are impacted. So we also had a announcement from the SEC that they were going to conduct a, uh, or seek an interlock, inter interlocutory uh, appeal, and it's a case against Ripple. Essentially, uh, the SEC is saying that, oh, hey, we got one decision from the Ripple case saying that like these specific or programmatic sales are not securities. And then we just had another uh, like opinion from a judge in the uh, Terra Luna case saying, oh, no, this is all securities all the way up and down. So they want to take it up to a uh, this next appeal. This will take it to a... Um, I believe it's a panel of three judges and potentially the entire district uh, set of appeal judges that will take a look at this. Uh, but this is just going to add more time in um, from the last time that we had on, I believe we had on Alex. Uh, he thought that this could push out the, the beginning of the trial for like another year or so. Um, and if it goes up to the Supreme court, it could take, you know, several years <laughs> to get there. Um, Right. So back to DeFi news. Uh, we have another shutdown. This is like, this is just like shutdown week, like wind down week. Uh, 100 Finance passed a proposal to wind down their money markets after their April exploit. Um, unfortunate as well, too. So they are going to be winding it down and they're going to be issuing a claim for MVE handholders. Uh, on any subsequent recovered assets once victims of the hack are made whole. Uh, it's tough to be a money market in these uh, these conditions. In general, they're probably one of the most attacked protocols out there. 
because you have a lot of things to consider, not just technical exploits, but economic ones, because you're worrying about changing liquidity conditions and other things that matter in you know, what is a living and breathing product, as opposed to something like Uniswap v2, v3, even v4, that tries to keep itself as isolated and contained within its own sandbox as possible. And I've seen actually some, I guess, more uh, satirical examples on uh, on Twitter where they consider getting exploited like a rights to passage for money market protocols at this point, which is a pretty sad state of affairs at this point that people have you know, come to accept this. And um, trying to move past one once these happen are really, really tough on these protocols. It really separates out who's willing to you know push that boulder up the mountain per se, compared to who's ready to fold over when something bad like this does happen. Yeah. And so uh, they lost $7.4 million in April after an attacker performed a flash loan to manipulate token exchange rates and drained all the pools. Um, I actually remember when they launched on, where did they launch? Was it Polygon? Uh, but uh, it looked like they, they could be building something there, but unfortunately, they just didn't make it out. Uh, we also had some news that Stadler Labs is launching a, a liquid restaking token, which is essentially just you give them ETH and then they're going to go put it in Eigenlayer. Uh, pull this up. So they say it's the first of their kind where you can have a wrapped deposited Eigenlayer token to go use in DeFi. And... Also, yesterday we had a announcement that the Synthetics crew is going to list uh, Tether USD perps on Quinta and uh, also on Synthetics as well, too, so that you can trade Tether in case of a DPEG. Yeah, and so we'll we'll leave with some NFT news as well too. So uh, popular NFT uh, project Utes, which was super popular in Solana, uh, I think three or four months ago, transitioned over to Polygon and has seen not that great of of uptake there. And now they're migrating to Ethereum, uh, where pretty much the remaining NFT uh, volume is for <laughs> for everything. Everything ends up on Ethereum, doesn't it? Um, uh, I know. It's where the liquidity is. Yeah. Uh, but that's going to wrap it up. Yeah. Uh, before yeah. we bounce, can uh, we get Corey to just offer a quick TLDR oh, yeah. on the Dolomite news? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that, Sam, do you want to bring it up also on our Twitter? Oh, yeah, sure. Might help add more context to it in case people are watching. But we launched this new feature called Zap this week, which was a really exciting one for us. It's um, going to add a lot more utility to the, money mark, uh, to the money market system so users can instantly zap, as it's called, from any asset to any asset in the platform, allowing you to automate the looping process or leveraging process some users might take or hedging. Or just very simply, you have something on money market, but you don't want to you know, pull the funds off the platform, take it elsewhere, swap it, redeposit it. You know, we're trying to remove the click simulator that people have complained about on the platform. And... The important thing with Zap is aside from this user experience bump that this is going to enable for users, it's actually our first step into paving the way for Dolomite to become more of a robust portfolio management platform 
with cross margin built into it. So we're starting off looking and feeling like more of an Ave with some neat tricks built into it. But over time, we think that there'll be a lot of opportunity for us to differentiate our product by focusing on those portfolio management features instead of doing what some of these other protocols have done by expanding into other horizontal verticals with launching new stable coins or other larger things. <clears throat> what do you think about the, especially for cross margined assets for these money markets for what's seen for what happened in curve or sorry, Aave V2 with the CRV tokens uh, where the, the risk of liquidation was not I guess, properly transferred onto Mitch's position and the the cross margin or like uh, cross asset borrowing that he was able to engage in essentially allowed him to sub or like borrow subsidized capital from Ave, uh, and then on the other hand, you saw like isolated markets like with Frax like ramp up really quickly, uh, push the interest rates well into the three digits within like a thirty six hour period. And start to put stress on those on those positions. And Windmoon, who actually just dropped off, uh, made a nice quote that you know he who liquidates first liquidates best. Yeah, I saved that quote in my in my <laughs> journal of just good things to quote from in the future. I thought it was really good. Um, but one of the key things we built into Dolomite is this modularity approach because if there's one thing we can know for certain is that liquidity conditions and the DeFi uh, overall ecosystem is going to change over time. And the need to adapt to that is very important. The Ave team, when they first built V2, um, don't get me wrong, they're a really intelligent team. But I think when they built it, they weren't necessarily expecting it to become the market leader that it ended up becoming. You know, they probably thought it would become pretty large, but not necessarily overtake lending on centralized platforms to the point where they became a generic market leader. And because of that, there were certain risk mitigation tools that just weren't quite in there that needed to be in order for them to properly manage the risk on Mitch's position in particular with Curve. So because Dolomite is way, way smaller right now at you know about $8 million in TVL compared to Aave's cumulative billions across different networks, we don't need to necessarily worry about those same things, but we do have all the same controls that Aave V3 has. We also have the modularity to support some of the more niche use cases that Frax was able to implement in order to ramp up interest over time. And we could do that on not necessarily just a market-wide basis, but even to certain positions that might be problematic. So that ability to you know, single out problematic positions or actors, um, just in case if there's some kind of market-wide change or some deep-seated risk in a position that becomes problematic over time, is I think the really important thing. Because above all, of course, the curve situation sparked a lot of controversy and everyone injecting their own opinion because that's what people do on crypto Twitter. But let's face it, the protocols that had the ability to institute some of these really harsh risk conditions were the ones that walked away really cleanly from it. Even if they didn't necessarily even roll it out, just the fact that they could have. I think Abracadabra was a really good example of this with MIM. I don't recall if they actually ended up rolling it out, but they basically had a proposal in place that would have ramped up the APR that Mitch was paying to like 10,000% or something ridiculous. And um, they didn't actually end up rolling it out as far as I recall. I think it was just the fact that it was going to was enough for him to start making moves to start lowering the position down. So in that way, these protocols kind of take on more of the central bank approach of being like the Fed, of the warning of them hiking rates, if, to just give that analogy, the warning of them hiking rates became enough to, um, to shift behavior 
in order to more properly clear out their loan book and put things into more of a self-contained, less risky scenario. And I think the key takeaway from money market protocols is that if you want to be able to survive these really harsh conditions where something very wacky can happen and you have to expect that wackiness, not count against it, it's to have these levers in place in order to, uh, to mitigate them, God forbid they happen, when they probably will. Yeah, it's just about being able to respond quickly because these situations can deteriorate quickly and, uh, you know, the protocol has to ensure that it it survives afterwards, right? And that it doesn't have any, I mean, like different protocols have different ideas of bad debt, right? So like in Aave V2, there is bad debt and that can be passed on to the Aave holders. Yeah. Uh, but there's a very know. interesting point here, which is that a lot of people want things to sort of be into code, right? So you have fracs with their dynamic interest rate models you know, which is in the code, but it sort of behaves in this weird way. And sometimes the code is like a little unpredictable or people don't understand it, right? Because not everyone reads the code. And mm -hmm. so, so you had a lot of these crypto Twitter people that didn't read the code. <laughs> I don't know what they read, but they, maybe they read the example, right? It was an example with like different numbers. And they were like, well, this is probably what's happening. But I mean, that just shows like the threat is like when you want to mitigate a panic or some crisis, right? Generally, and, and you're dealing with people that can react to what you do, it could be more effective, right? Like you see with the Fed and, you know, di different sort of agencies, right? That, that we see like in traditional finance, just to sort of threaten people or kind of exert some pressure and then have them conform right, willingly, rather than do this thing that they might not be able to respond to, that then leads into this weird cycle of everyone's like, oh, we can't respond to it in time, or, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just happening all of a sudden, you know, like, what's happening, you know, and then everyone panics. So I, I think this, I don't know, I mean, in a way, it sort of gets philosophically back to the whole layer zero consensus kind of idea behind Ethereum, right, because it's like Vitalik always likes to say, well, Ultimately, with proof of stake, we can all just agree to slash this guy's funds or whatever. And then people say, well, no, it should, that's wrong. You can't have humans involved. You, you need to do it all mechanistically, right? You can't, you know, but I think, yeah. I don't know. I think we're still figuring that out, though. That's part of this continual process. Yeah. Corey, I wanted to ask you about your opinion on Mitch's creation of the uh, FRAX. CRV USD pair during the whole fiasco. So in order to uh, draw in more like liquidity and TVL into the into the Frax pair, he created a like a brand new incentive and he dropped a bunch of CRV into it and within like 3 days it acquired 10 million dollars in TVL. Do you see that as something that like is this the is this a new meta that we're start going to see is that you know the pairing these a tokens or c tokens inside of a exchange like you know I, whatever's on arbitrum um and then incentivizing that pair um rather than like trying to incentivize the like the deposits into the into the uh, into the lending pair itself i think it really is going to depend on where people think the path of least resistance is. You know, in Mitch's case, what he did was he found a way to growth hack a cheap way for people to do essentially like a carry trade or like an arbitrage that might exist between 
two markets that are this very distinct from each other and previously didn't have a way to very closely or as easily bridge to each other. Mm -hmm. And in the case of like an A token or a C token offering like some kind of bridging tool where you can swap between them, that might also be a really strong mechanism as well if there's not enough liquidity for redemptions. And instead it's easier to offer like a way for people to trade between them. And um, you know, looking at Dolomite as an example, I think that one of the ways that we've found some success so far is by offering liquidity for markets that people would have a tough time hedging against or leveraging up because there isn't a money market for them. So being able to create markets for them in a safe way allows people to run strategies more efficiently they couldn't do beforehand. And when you mix that with our virtual liquidity model, where people can actually create uh, virtual decentralized exchanges in our platform, that lets people trade with virtual liquidity instead of the real spot liquidity, but still have it be spot settled. Mm -hmm. We can enable people to trade under uh, conditions of extreme duress when there is um, insufficient liquidity. So to give you a more tangible example of this, think back to the USDC DPEG event that happened in March of this year. You know, Ave was under really harsh uh, liquidity constraints and no one was able to withdraw USDT because everyone was trying to borrow it in order to purchase USDC at a discount and speculate on it returning back to PEG. And when it was at 80, 85 cents or so. And if you were an unfortunate USDT depositor, um, you might be happy earning really, really high yield that weekend on USDT because everyone was borrowing it. But if you identified an opportunity where you wanted to withdraw your USDT from Aave to go you know, pull your funds off elsewhere, or maybe you didn't like the existential risk that existed because you felt that Aave would accumulate bad debt and you didn't want to hold your USDT anymore, you were inherently stuck. You couldn't do anything with that USDT except for earn that high interest and just wait it out until more liquidity came in. Or if you got fortunate enough to snipe a little bit when people deposited, you'd have to like very carefully pull some out and do this really wonky cat and mouse game. With a platform like Dolomite, what we have created is a way for people to trade that virtual USDT, as we call it. And that would require us creating a market for it. So very analogous to what Mitch did with, with Curve and Curve USD, we would have created basically the same kind of thing, a market for people to trade USDT and USDC virtually in our platform between people that explicitly opted into underwriting liquidity for it. And the end result would be under those harshest of liquidity conditions, there's a mechanism for exiting. And even if the mechanism doesn't offer the best fees or the best execution, having some form of exit is always better than having no exit at all. Yeah. And we think that's a really good mechanism for fixing some of these really tough problems that don't matter most of the time, but when they matter, they matter a lot. Stuff. Good stuff. So I believe that we'll, uh, unless there's any kind of like final words, parting thoughts, uh, where should people find you? On Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is at Corey Kaplan three. There's also our Dolomite handle for following more of the product oriented news. Now happy to chat more on there. You can chat on discord with us as well. All the relevant links you could find from us on Twitter. Very cool. Excellent. Um, well, Corey, Chano, thank you for being here today. Also, Wind Moon, thank you for joining wherever you are. And uh, you're welcome back anytime. Actually, this is both of your second times to come back. So welcome to have you here. You get poaps. <laughs> oh, joy. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, the, the soon to be, wait, actually, well, there is no Leviathan token. So, um, no. what are we going to call it? Tentacles or something? <laughs> 
I don't know, but if we do launch one, we should launch it on Telegraph in honor of Chen Ho. Exactly. I feel like the kind of guests. I feel like the kind of guests or you know, people you have, you know, are going to question like a Leviathan too. Why? Why do you guys have a token? <laughs> um, we're going to wrap it up there. We'll see everybody back for our last show of the week tomorrow on Friday, and uh, we'll see you then. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you guys.